Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, it's great to have you along for the ride. And as many of you know, today we get to continue a series that we've called Next Steps uh, that was designed for any of us who entered into the new year with a desire to grow in our faith. And in fact, I decided to do this series after a string of conversations with a whole bunch of you who confessed that the ongoing pandemic had left you feeling a little bit stalled in your pursuit of God, and you wondered what it might look like to take a step towards intentionally re-engaging in your faith journey. Uh, and now, interestingly enough, during these conversations, a whole bunch of you pointed to people that you knew, like other people whose faith you found inspiring, like people whose faith seemed to leave them better equipped to sort of navigate the storms in life by clinging to that knowledge that God was with them and God was for them and that he loved them. And he was ultimately in control, even and maybe especially when everything felt out of control. And you wondered to me, like, what would it look like to cultivate a faith like that? A faith that can make a real difference in the real world. And so after a series of these conversations, I sort of went, okay, God, apparently we need to talk about this. And so we designed the series Next Steps. And so we're taking five weeks to talk about five simple, practical, highly intuitive things that you can do in order to activate all sorts of wonderful potential in your faith. And here's the thing, I've been a pastor for a long time. Now these things have proven to be effective again and again and again. And so with our time today, we get to talk about the third step that I'd suggest if you're ready to take your faith to the next level. And I'll begin this morning by sharing our big idea for today. So all my talks kind of roll around one big idea. And this one is really simple and really memorable. It goes like this, people help people grow. Just four words there, people help people grow. And to illustrate what I mean, I need you to help me out a little bit. Uh, and fair warning, some of you are going to love what we're about to do, and others of you will hate what we're about to do. And I think, full disclosure, if I was sitting where you're sitting and someone with a microphone strapped to their cheek was about to tell me what I'm going to tell you, I would hate it. So that's just how it is. But nonetheless, I want to invite you to participate. Um, so here's what I'd like you to do in just a minute. I want you to turn to someone near you and answer one of two questions. So here's the first question. Uh, if you're a Christian, who has been most influential in growing your faith other than Jesus? He doesn't count. I mean, he counts, but that's not a fair answer, okay? So who in your life has been most influential when it comes to growing your faith? And it could be like a parent or a grandparent or a coach or a mentor or a friend, or even someone like me that sort of kick-started you with a conversation. So that's the first one. Second question goes like this. If you're not a Christian, and by the way, if that's you and you're here and you're kicking the tires, we are honored that you're with us. But if you're not a Christian, who has most caused you to have an interest in faith? And it may very well be the person who brought you to church today, or the person who sent you the link to this talk. Someone who, for reasons you don't completely understand, has taken an interest in your faith journey. And maybe because of their life, you're curious. So just take a second and turn to someone next to you and just answer that question. I'll give you like 20 seconds. So go ahead and do that real quick. And you online, you can talk to the people who are with you. All right. All right, and time. See, some of you loved it and some of you hated it, right? Isn't that great? And some of you just met a friend you can have lunch with. So, hey. All right, so now, if I were to answer that question 
you guys are unruly. This is why we're not going to do this very often, right? Yeah. So if I were to answer that question for you, I'd mention three specific guys. And honestly, when I look back at those relationships, they almost seem providential. It's almost like God allowed these people to intersect my life at just the right time and just the right place. And I had the opportunity, I had the invitation to sort of lean into those relationships. And here's the thing, I did. And as a result, these three guys profoundly shaped my life and my faith. They impacted my view of God, my understanding of Jesus, and even like how I experienced the world. And this is what's interesting. I'm not the only one who's had that sort of experience. Like whenever someone shares the story of their faith with me, they talk about relationships. In fact, in my 20 plus years as a pastor, I honestly can't recall anyone who told me that they came to faith without the influence of other people. Instead, they say things like, you know, well, I was just going along, doing my own thing, and, and then I met this girl, and she was amazing. And we started talking, we got to know each other, and then she invited me to visit her church. And I didn't want to, but she was amazing. <laughs> and so I went to her church, and it wasn't at all what I expected. I mean, they served popcorn at this church. Can you imagine? Like, it was weird, but everyone was eating it, so I just went along. And, but here's the thing, I, it was strangely intriguing. And then after church, we went out to lunch, and she began to share about the difference that her faith made in her life. And, and I got curious because see what she had, it was way more compelling than religion. She seemed to somehow have a, a, a relationship with God. She had something honestly that I wanted. And so I began a journey of faith. I've heard that story a bunch. And another version of the story goes something like this. Like after college, I moved to Grand Rapids from the east side of the state. And I started to work for a company that was owned by a Christian. And honestly, uh, his faith made me curious. And so I started to like creep on him, like online. You can't do that like in the real world, you get arrested, right? But I, but I started creeping, just kind of following what he was posting and what he was saying and watching what he was doing in the office, you know, from a carefully, careful distance. And, and as I creeped, I observed that his life and his priorities and his passions and his relationships, well, they were really different, like in a good sort of way. And, and I watched how he treated his business partners and his employees and I saw how he prioritized his family. I, I once even saw him like turn down a lucrative business deal because he felt like it might be a little unethical. In other words, over time, I, I saw him live by a completely different set of values than what were operating in my life. And I, and I guess I was impressed. His faith made a real difference in his life. And, and I got curious because, well, what he had was way more compelling than religion. Somehow he had sort of living, breathing relationship with God. Something, and something in me wanted what he had. And, and, and so I began to explore a journey of faith. And I began to, to wonder that maybe there was a God and that maybe that God could intersect with my life like he had with my boss's life. I guess what I'm trying to say is that whenever I hear faith stories, I hear about relationships that catalyzed curiosity and provided a context for conversation. And that's why I'm convinced that relationships can be incredibly helpful for growing in your faith. But, but if we're honest, like the opposite of this is also true. There's like a dark side to this force. <laughs> the principle works both ways. I mean, I won't have you turn to the person sitting next to you because it might be awkward on this one, but, but check out this question, right? 
Has there ever been anyone in your life who undermined your faith in God? In other words, have you ever met someone whose influence in your life seemed to kick the legs out from underneath your faith? Like as a result of that relationship, you found yourself drifting farther and farther and farther away from God and from where you want to be in your life and in your faith. A relationship which, if you're honest, left you with some of your greatest regrets. Like maybe it was a text message to which in hindsight you would rather have not responded. Anyone done that? Like you hit send and then you're like, oh no, <laughs> right? Uh, and you're hoping there's like an app to take back and there's not, you know. Or maybe like an invitation which you wish you hadn't accepted or a date on which you would prefer you hadn't gone or a business opportunity which in hindsight you would rather have walked away from. I mean, it's interesting to think about, but our greatest regrets don't, always ha don't, don't often happen in isolation, right? Our, our destructive decisions and habits are almost always introduced through relationships. And that's why relationships are such powerful things. Like whether we realize it or not, they intersect with our faith for good or for bad. I was thinking about it this week. I, I'm, I think you could even say that there aren't really any neutral relationships in your life. And that's why I'm convinced that relationships can be one of the factors that can be intentionally leveraged for you to grow in your faith. In fact, an intentional relationship might be your next step to get from where you are to closer to where you want to be. Okay, so not surprisingly, this concept comes up repeatedly in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Apparently, like, it's been true for as long as there have been people, and God wants to speak to this principle and point us in the right direction. So what I want to do the rest of our time is sort of show you a couple of my favorite examples to sort of flesh this out a bit. And the first one uh, comes from a collection of wisdom literature in the Old Testament that was assembled by a man named Solomon. Uh, he was an ancient king of Israel, Israel's third king, if you're counting, and he lived a thousand years or so before the time of Jesus. And by the way, I can't tell you how many times I used this verse during my years as a youth pastor. It's one of the principles I most wanted my students and my friends to understand. So here's what Solomon wrote. He said it this way, walk with the wise and become wise. Now, it's interesting to note that like in the original language of this text, which was Hebrew, this, this really wasn't presented as a command. It, it feels commandish in English, but... But in Hebrew, it's more like an observation. Solomon wants his readers to know that wisdom is contagious. I was going to say like a virus, but that feels too soon. So we're not going to say that, right? I had that in my notes and I was like, nope, not doing that. And then I did. So we had a laugh. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, in other words, like you will, by nature of proximity, become wiser by surrounding yourself with people who are wise, like by doing life with them. And it's worth noting that to the Jewish mind, and Solomon was Jewish, a wise person is simply someone who understands that all of life is connected. And to be connected, I mean like what we do today influences who we become tomorrow. Our choices have consequences. There's no isolated events or thought patterns or decisions. And so Solomon observes that if you spend time with people who live as if life is connected, you will too, and it will positively impact the way you view everything, like your body, your health, your morality, your business, your family, and even your faith. If you walk with the wise, you become wise. 
But as the proverb continues, Solomon offers his readers a warning, and it's not the warning that you might think. Because as you soon see, he doesn't tell his readers that a companion of fools suffers or becomes a fool. Instead, he says this, walk with the wise and become wise for the companion of fools. Like if you're in the proximity of foolish people, you suffer harm. And in my experience, this is where we tend to get tripped up because we assume that foolishness like wisdom is contagious. But that isn't what Solomon teaches here. He teases out a subtle difference between surrounding yourself with wise people and foolish people that can actually help you diffuse your internal resistance to this verse. And here's what I mean by that. Solomon warns that though the companion of fools won't necessarily become a fool, they will be negatively impacted by the fool's behavior. Practically, this means that, you know, you may spend time with fools and never see the world like they do. You may never behave in the ways that they behave. You may live as if life is connected. But if you surround yourself with people who don't live that way, then the shrapnel from the explosion of their life will negatively impact you. And here's why I think that's so important. Like over the years, more than a few of us have defended our unhealthy relationships to the people who love us. Maybe this happened in your teenage years, so a few of us go way back for this. But we said things like this. I know they're an idiot, but I'll never do what they do, right? And some of you were like, whoa, I had this conversation with my 16-year-old yesterday. Right. I know they're an idiot, but I'll never do what they do. I'll never think the way they think. I'll never participate in the things in which they participate. Although if your teenager did this, they'd probably leave the participle dangling. But that's just for you grammar nerds, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, so don't worry, I will be just fine. I'm safe. And that sounds good. It sounds reassuring as a parent. And, and here's the thing. Whoever says this sort of thing actually believes it when they say it. But Solomon, you know, we're talking a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Solomon who collects the wisdom of his age to bless those who will come after his age. He says, based on the way he has observed the world, he says, I would disagree with this statement. And that's why he reminds his readers that it's not just the fool who suffers harm. The companion of fools will suffer as well. And if you think about this, you've probably seen this in your own life. You, you've probably had friends whose lives became incredibly complicated because they were on the wrong side of this principle. Like they were with the wrong people at the wrong time and they suffered the consequences of someone else's bad decisions. Like they didn't make the bad decisions, but they were just too close when it went down and they suffered. I mean, many of you know that my wife, Sarah Ann and I have four boys. Cute, amazingly cute boy photo. Oh, right? Yeah, professional photography. And the funny thing is they're so angelic when we take our photo every year. It is such a peaceful experience. Have you guys done family photos? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like on the way, I'm like, if you don't smile, so help me, Bob. This is not going to go well with you in the land. Yeah, that thing. But anyway, nice picture ended up with. But um, this, is, this principle is the sort of thing that can keep my wife and I up at night. Because we, it, like, we pay all sorts of attention to the people with whom our boys want to hang out. It's like, and we pay attention to the parents of the people who our boys want to hang out with their, their, their kids. Because, because while this principle is so true, and we've seen it over and over and over again, it's that big a deal to us because it's that big a deal. Uh, here's the thing. And, and this is like, it's true for our kids, but even as like 
church people, and we're like church people, my wife and I, we need to pay. I know, right? Sounds like a bad, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, we have to pay attention to this principle for ourselves. Because foolish people are all sorts of dangerous to our lives and our faith as well. And the foolish people, and, and you can identify them this way, like they're the people in your life who know the difference between right and wrong, but just don't care, right? They just kind of, they don't care. And in fact, that's why you can't challenge a foolish person by saying something like, hey, if you do that, you do realize that that's going to go somewhere you don't want to go, right? Because they'll respond, oh yeah, but I know it'll all work out for me. I mean, I know everybody else who takes that path ends up getting hurt, but I, it won't happen to me. I'm different. I'm special, right? And you want to look back at them and say, totally, you're right about one thing. You are special. <laughs> but see, not in the way that you're probably thinking right now. Everybody who does that gets hurt. Like, what are you doing? So, but, but, but Solomon even tells us, like, trying to correct a fool in their thinking is also a waste of time. Here's what he says in the same, in the same uh, you know, the same collection of wisdom. He says, do not speak to fools, for they will scorn your prudent words. Solomon's like, it's, it's a waste of time trying to correct foolish people. They'll just laugh at you and ignore your warning and probably think you're judging them. So he's like, you're better off just staying away from them. Be careful who you surround yourself with. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the authors of the Bible teach something that many of us have experienced to be true. If you do life with foolish people, you're eventually going to get hurt. And that's why Solomon warns his readers that the people with whom they surround themselves with matter a lot. They'll impact your life. They'll impact your faith. One way or the other. If you walk with wise people, then God can leverage those relationships to build wisdom in you and to build faith in you. And if you do life with fools, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. So that's the first verse. I'm going to do two verses today. That's the first verse I wanted to unpack with you. The second one actually comes from a letter in the New Testament of the Bible and that was originally written to Christians living in Greece. And uh, the author is a pastor by the name of Paul who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament. And here's what he writes to them. And this is another great principle. Almost sounds like a proverb. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And just so we're clear, Paul was not talking about the band Bad Company from the 1970s. Because a few of you were like, oh man, that was the jam back in the day, right? But here's the thing. I'm not even going to tell you what their number one song on iTunes is right now on Spotify because it's naughty, all right? I'm just telling you. And, uh, you know, I've been waiting all week for that one. I was really excited. I was like, I sent it to Randy and he's like, huh? So I was like, it's going to crush it on Sunday, right? And, but I mean, seriously, you look at guys like that and you think there's no way people like hair like that are trustworthy. I'm just saying, but maybe I'm just jealous. We're moving on. Okay. So what Paul is saying here is that human relationships can have a negative impact on character. And that's another one of those things, if you think about it, you already know that that's true. I mean, the people with whom you surround yourself undeniably make an impact on how you feel about the decisions that you make because it's only natural for us to determine what's normal and acceptable by observing the people around us. And that's why certain patterns of behavior have a tendency to be more common in certain populations. And here's an example to kind of show you what I mean. It was about 15 years ago, I had a conversation at lunch at Chipotle, of all places, during a youth ministry conference in the city of Atlanta. And as a part of the schedule, the, the organizers did something really cool. They paired youth pastors from different parts of the country 
up together and said, hey, we want you to have lunch and we want you to have an intentional conversation and we're going to give you some questions. It was one of the coolest experiences they ever had in student ministry. Uh, the guy that they paired me with did ministry in the inner city of Chicago, which is almost exactly like Ada. So I don't know why they did that, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so we sat down, we kind of opened the envelope, and the first question said, you know, what, what is the biggest challenge facing the students that you serve? Like if you think about, you think about their lives, you think about what's going on, what is the number one challenge that they face? And he immediately said, oh man, I mean by far the biggest challenge that we face in the student ministry that I lead is teenage pregnancy. He says, in fact, I mean, we had so many girls bringing babies to youth group, we had to open the church's nursery so that the moms could attend. And there's me, he goes, and I mean, that's got to be everywhere. How many babies are coming to your youth group in Ada? And I said, none. <laughs> I said, in fact, like, in like the, at that point, in like the 12 years that I had done student ministry, I'm really only aware of one baby that was born to a teenage mom in the church where I served. And, and, and just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that the students under my care were more mature or had better character than the students under his care. I'm only observing that the community in which someone belongs often helps them determine what's normal and acceptable. And in his community, unwed teenage moms weren't an anomaly, like they were common. And there was a system to care for and, and support them as they navigated life as an unwed teenage mom. But see, in my community, that was an anomaly. And a girl in the youth group who became pregnant would face an incredible amount of public scrutiny. So there was like a social pressure, if you will, against that particular behavior. And my point is that the people with whom we surround ourselves can greatly impact the choices that we make and the way we see the world, and even our character. And I think that's what Paul was getting after when he wrote that bad company corrects, or corrupts rather, good behavior. It's almost, it's almost like there's a spiritual nature to relationships. Like there's the part that we understand that what's going on, but, but there's more somehow going on as well. And that's why I'm convinced for a whole bunch of us the next step for us in our faith journey may be to become more intentional about relationships. Not necessarily to fire all your friends and start over, right? But, but maybe, maybe to make a move to be more intentional with the people with whom you're spending your time. Because as we've said, people will help other people grow in life and in faith. And so now as we begin to like come in for a landing, I want to ask you a question super practical. Like, what do we do with this? Like, it's pretty easy to understand the principle. You go, yep, I can see that. Yep, I've had teenagers and I've been a teenager. I get it. Sure. And so I thought about this a whole bunch this week, and um, I want to offer just a couple suggestions. So the first one goes like this. Um, if you're like, maybe this is my next step, what would I do? Here's what you would do. Intentionally engage in a relational environment where talking about faith is a priority. Like a community which regularly sets aside time and space to discuss the matters of the heart. Not just the weather and the sports and all that, and it's important, and kids, and that's important too. But like really goes after the, the core essentials of faith and the intersection of faith and life. We, around here, we talk about it like in, in terms of like shapes. Like right now you're sitting in a row, and we say, you know, man, what would it be, look like to move from a row to a circle? with some other people and you know their name and other people that are trying to make Jesus and, and following him a priority in their life. 
And again, instead of just sitting in rows and listening to someone like me talk, um, you know, and that, that can be helpful often as a way to start the conversation, but, but it really is not, if you want the whole experience, you've got to get in a circle. And here's the thing, I can't tell you the number of people over the years who said things like, man, it was in that group. Like I grew up in church, I heard a million talks, I sung a million songs, right? But, but when I got in that group and we started to share about like, our faith journeys and the struggles that we were facing and the questions that we had. And I felt like it was okay to ask the questions, like for the first time, like I didn't understand that or, or how does that work? It's like it was in a group that my faith first felt like it moved from black and white to color. Like it was there before, but, but man, I didn't even realize what I was missing. And, and so that is so powerful for any of us. But, but if you'll permit me a brief aside to indulge in an area of passion, I want to note that this this principle is true for us and it's true for our teens. It's like if you have a student in junior high or senior high, you really should plug them into Anthem here at Keystone or another similar community. And, and, and please don't wait until your kid like hits 11th grade uh, because I've seen this over and over again. It's really hard to plug them in at that point. They get so busy. You should do it now, unless they're in 11th grade now, and then you can try, and that's great too, right? Yeah, but, but trust me, that, like this isn't about building a larger church program. It's about building your kids' faith by putting them in a community that intentionally prioritizes a relationship with Jesus. And they still talk about sports and school and dating and all that too, but it's like it's an intentional community where matters of faith are brought up again and again and again, so that's the first suggestion that I would make, intentionally engage in a relational environment where talking about faith is a priority. The second one is sort of the flip side uh, to this because your issue may not be finding some relationships that can help you build your faith. Like maybe you already have those relationships. And if that's you, then here is what I would suggest your next step may be. Uh, consider making yourself available to someone else who desires to grow in their faith. Like maybe you reach out to someone or a, a group of people in your life and start a relationship or start a small group community where you meet each week or every other week or month. There's not a lot of rules. We don't track it and you don't get graded. It's totally cool, right? But you start this either relationship or small community to sort of talk about matters of life and faith, to encourage one another as you pursue Jesus. And you can even think of it this way. You could reach out um, to us here at church and let us know you're available if we have a group that needs to be led. But honestly, in my experience, the easiest way to start a group is with people who you already know because there's already a foundation of trust that's been built. Like, uh, or, or maybe this, like maybe it's a group in your life and they're like one season of life behind you. If you're like, you have grade schoolers, you look at these moms that are carrying babies and you think, oh man, I remember those days and I wish I knew some stuff that I know now. And maybe you reach out and you start a community with these people or you start investing in one or two of them. It, because, you know, they're asking some of the same questions you were asking, and now you've traveled that road. So it's, it's a powerful thing to pass on whatever we've known to somebody who's just behind us. Okay, so now here's what's so cool about all this. My bet is if you'll take a risk and make an invitation or a series of invitations, not only will the people who you invest in experience growth in their faith, but you, through the act of serving, will catalyze your own faith journey as well. Because as we've said, God uses relationships to grow faith. And he wants to use your relationships to grow your faith. So one of two things. Consider getting in a community where faith is discussed on a regular basis if you're not already in one. 
if you're already in one, consider reaching out to someone and either connecting them into your group or maybe starting a new group with them. I'm telling you, people help people grow. All right, now if you're in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand um, and I'll close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, this, um, thank you for the beautiful simplicity of this truth. And thank you that from the very beginning, um, you have desired to be in relationship and to connect us in relationship so that we might journey with one another and help one another grow. And so I pray for courage for any of us who need to make that step. Uh, give them the courage to send an email to us here at church or to reach out to a friend and just intentionally connect and create some space in life where we can ground ourselves in faith. And as we do, I pray that we would experience our faith moving from black and white to color. But for today, we thank you for the grace in which we stand. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came among us to show us the way and the truth and the life. It is in his name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. If you need any prayer, uh, we have a couple of friends that will be over the screen on this side or under the screen on this side. Please join us up front. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Settle for the ghost of you. I miss you.